0: and no fluff welcome to the richer geek podcast we're here helping people find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom i'm mike stoller and in this podcast you'll hear from others who are already doing these things and learn how you can too welcome back to the richer geek podcast This is Mike, and on episode 71, we shared how I'll be transitioning to hosting the podcast. Many times, episodes are recorded several months in advance, so during this transition, sometimes you'll hear hybrid episodes. This is one of those, and we hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Richer Geek Podcast. I had the pleasure of meeting David Blatt for today's episode. He's the CEO of Capstack Partners. Basically, his company helps real estate clients find debt solutions, which include project financing, loan sales, syndications, and loan workouts. He's a licensed attorney, a real estate broker, and a financial advisor. So he's got really a great background and perspective. He talks a little bit about his debt fund that he basically ran for about 10 years. And so he really comes at it from the debt side and how to get financing around real estate investments. We had a really fun conversation, and I like how he talked about quote unquote, unloved assets that he's seen right now, uh, including hotels and where he sees the opportunity. Let's jump in to the show. David, welcome
2: to the show. Thank you for having me.
1: Let's start a little bit with having you share your background and how you got into this space.
2: Uh, sure. So uh, I, my focus is uh, in real estate and particularly the, uh, the debt capital markets. Um, so I've been in um, actively in, in real estate and real estate finance for 20 years. Um, I started out uh, working for uh, a small uh, brownfield redeveloper, um, which is basically uh, investors who look for environmentally impacted properties that they then clean up and, you know, make them essentially functional and accessible. Uh, and that was really my on-ramp into distressed uh, real estate, which was focus of mine um, and still is, uh, because uh, uh, what we were finding at the time was that, you know, nobody goes out and advertises their contaminated properties for sale, um, but a lot of banks who had defaulted loans on suspected, contaminated properties never wanted to take back the keys and so they were willing to dump this stuff at like you know 10 20 cents on the dollar so it was really uh, you know if you knew how to handle it uh it was just a really really great space to play in um and that was really the intro for me to get involved in distressed real estate distressed mortgages and so from there i had left started my own platform and then i ended up ramping that up into a full-fledged distressed debt fund that I ran in total for about 10 years, uh, You know, started out with private capital and then graduated to institutional capital through the last recession. And then around 2012, market started to rebound. I dissolved the fund and then I formed my current platform, Capstack Partners, which focuses on two things. Uh, we have an advisory practice which works with um, real estate developers, uh, helping them line up the capital that they need, primarily the debt, Uh, for projects uh, and their platforms. And then we also work with lenders to help them um, either uh, bring in other lenders to partner on loans or if they're looking to sell loans or things like that. Uh, And then on the principal side, uh, I've continued to actively invest uh, and looking for those same type of distressed or heavy turnaround value add type opportunities. where instead of uh, the institutional funds, uh, I've really uh, had a more of a stable of individual investors uh, that have uh, come in and participated in those. And, you know, that's really um, been the focus for the last number of years. Uh, so that's, that's my background.
1: It's such a great background. There's so many interesting pieces there in the whole brownfield, contaminated property. I would have never thought of that, but I totally get it where it's just like, that is a very desperate seller, like get this off of my hands, (laughs) just like liability, all kinds of things around that, right? It's not even just so um, super, super interesting background. And I also like that you talked about, you ran this fund for, you know, 10 years and then the market started to improve, and you weren't finding as many distressed properties. So that was around 2012. Okay, so it's very appropriate now to talk about what you're seeing when people are trying to access capital with what's happening right now in the market.
2: Yeah. So um, you know, there's a couple of things. So first, uh, you know, uh, the market's been so strong. Uh, for such a long time, and uh, there's been tremendous interest in real estate, both from individual investors and, and institutions. And there's just, you know, a lot of capital chasing deals, which has made it really, really hard to find things uh, that, in my opinion, pencil out. Um, but certainly, you know, with what's happened this year with lockdown and, and everything, uh, you know, that is surrounding that I, I've seen, I I frankly have seen so much activity and, you know, we have been so active uh, in both sourcing uh, opportunities and, and accessing the capital for it. Um, And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, real estate's a fixed asset, right? So it's one of those types of things that when you go into it, Uh, it's not as easy to get out of it like, say, you know, a stock where, you know, if you just don't like the direction it's going in, you liquidate. Uh, But it's really uh, also an asset that teaches you the discipline of longer term investing and really thinking about how you're putting your money out. Uh, And I think that uh, it also creates a level of stability um, because you're not checking the market, so to speak, on a daily or, you know, minute by minute basis. Uh, so, uh, you know, what I've been finding is that, uh, one, uh, I haven't really seen any diminishment in uh, capital interest, investor interest, uh, and two, I think for our purposes, um, you know, institutional capital is great because there's so much of it, it's, it's defined capital, meaning, you know, when you're going to an institution you don't have to present to them, hey, what do you think about real estate? They have capital dedicated to uh, real estate investing and particularly to different strategies. So if you know where to go with a particular deal that you have, like in my case, let's say a distressed opportunity, you know, I, I know who I'm going to be talking to and that they have capital for that deal. The downside to that capital is that it usually has an exit period Uh, in what I would describe as the near term and I define the near term in real estate years. So, you know, near term being anywhere from two, three, five year horizon, you know, if it's a little longer, that's generally possible, but it's unusual. Um, But the point being that, you know, you really have to uh, buy with the very near term end in mind. And to me it goes contrary to the whole point of real estate investing, which is wealth accumulation Uh, And it's much more conducive to individual investors uh, and the sentiment of really building wealth, uh, especially if you're thinking about building that wealth generationally. So what's been, uh, I'd say, kind of better this go around, so to speak, in terms of like uh, the distress that we're seeing and, you know, the appetite is that there's a lot more investor interest in the asset class with that kind of uh foresight and and time horizons so you know where i had my distressed fund and i had to exit you know come 2012 when i dissolved the fund i literally had to like liquidate every piece of real estate or note or asset that we bought and you know on the other side you know we had returns but i didn't have any portfolio to speak of so it was a complete reset whereas now when we're buying uh assets and I execute a turnaround plan, and I take it from distress to performing, Uh, rather than have to sell, I go in with uh, a business plan of, say, refinancing the asset with, like, 10-year fixed rate money, which creates this, like, set it and forget it to some degree uh, kind of dynamic, and you know everybody's in it for the long-term horizon and we've created the value now we can sit back and really enjoy the benefits of owning that real estate collecting the rents getting the cash flow distributions and hopefully seeing the appreciation of value over the long term which is really what it's made for as an asset class
1: it's that is a great point um because and I've had people on the show who's, who are sharing, you know, strategies around things like, you know, um, 1031 exchange or deferred sales tr- or what is deferred sales trust. I don't know if I'm saying that right. DST. Yeah, that's right. Um, oh, the yeah,
2: Delaware statutory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is the same. Yeah. DSTs are like, you know, another
1: 1031 version. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's to, it's some. There's a popularity right now, too, because people are exiting that they don't really want to exit, to your point, right? And then they're trying to figure out where does the capital go and how do I keep it growing? And especially now, some assets are actually still pretty high price. Not all, right? We can definitely talk about some of the different classes, but yeah, that's a that's a challenge. And if you're, to your point, um, a mature kind of long-term investor, you don't want to be in that space. Like you, you want to continue to, to grow and build the wealth, not have to frantically search around for the where you can put the capital and reduce your taxes and all of that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this isn't an asset that's in, that's built for churn, you know, to, to be jumping in and out, you know, and there are people who are actively, you know, managing funds and things like that, that maybe do that. But to me, it's such a hard endeavor. Um, and I think it forces you into a position to potentially overpay and pray that the market momentum continues to move in your favor. Uh, you know, capital availability remains and listen, a lot of those things do happen and people, um, are successful, but it, that deviates from a thoughtful, deliberate execution for long-term value. And, uh, you know, I always, uh, you pose the question, are you an investor or a speculator? Uh, And if you define yourself as an investor, then you really need to look at opportunities through a longer term lens, uh, because otherwise you're going to end up undermining value creation. If you have to continue to jump in and out of things, reset, um, and and hope to find uh, something to roll into on the next one that makes sense.
1: And when you say longer term, and I know you talked about refinancing with a 10-year fix, but like, is that what you mean by longer term and and based on your experience? Uh,
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, you know, obviously everybody has uh, certain, you know, milestones uh, in their life individually, you know, and how they define those. But, you know, uh, the reason why I like, let's say, that example uh, of an execution, particularly if you're buying something that's like, distressed or uh, impacted that requires you to actively go in and really create value, whether you're doing, you know, just a basic renovation, you know, like take the fix and flip, you know, versus fix and hold. Right. Um, So the first part, the fix is where you're going to create value. So presumably you come in, you buy something that has diminished value. Your fix is going to create a higher value that's higher than what it costs for the purchase and the fix, right? In theory, in best case scenario, that's how it's gonna work. So now you basically have two paths in front of you. You can flip, make your profit, hope to find something else, roll it into the next one. You're gonna have costs associated, you're gonna have tax consequences associated, right? Okay, now we go to the other side and with that same model of buying low, adding value through that fix component, um, and then instead, Refinancing, you have now hopefully gotten a refinance at a much higher valuation that will deliver your initial investment back or a good chunk of it anyway in the form of the debt. So now you haven't even triggered a tax event because it's not technically profit or a return of your capital, right? And you're also going to get the benefit of collecting the cash flow stream that you've created as you've lowered the risk of owning this asset, right? So the ideal situation is that refinance has exited out your initial investment. And when I buy distressed, that, that does happen um, in a lot of occasions, or at least most of my risk gets taken off the table. And then I get to sit back and, you know, it's basically gravy train. So if I can set that up for the next decade for myself, um, Fantastic. You know, I mean, at that point, it's a low low to no risk proposition to earn that cash flow. And then in, you know, as a separate track, you know, the hope is, of course, you're you're buying good real estate. It will appreciate. Right. And generally speaking, if you do nothing with real estate, but just apply inflation to it over a decade, it should be worth more than when you bought it. Or when it was valued at the point of refinance, so you've been collecting cash flow effectively risk-free, and now, you, let's say you liquidate in year ten, um, you're going to see a return essentially that is all profit if that's when you want to sell, or you could refi again and maybe you're going to get another cash out at that new valuation, you know. So, to me, that is really the path to wealth accumulation. Um, you know, but if, if you're asking me what the definition of long-term horizon is, I mean, I guess that kind of like is relative, you could do it in five years, you know, it really all depends, but uh, it, it's definitely gotta be, you know, more than just like, you know, an in and out, you know, one, two year kind of thing, because that's just a grind. That's, that's not investing in real estate. That's, that's working in real estate.
1: Yeah. Now that's a really great point. Now we were chatting a little bit before we officially started recording, and I mentioned that Mike and I invest in hotels, and you get this big smile on your face. And <laughs> uh, and uh, I'd I'd love to have you share, you know, why why that made you smile and uh, what your thoughts are there.
2: Uh, I think you know. So let me let me just say that you know. I, I, when you're looking for distressed opportunities, you're going to be a contrarian investor. So, you know, at a high level, you're going to look at things that are unloved at a moment in time. Um, You know, there's a few asset classes right now that I think fall into that category. So, uh, you know, as we were talking um, hotels are certainly one of those, Uh, you know, people are obviously not out there traveling. A lot of hotels are suffering. you know and, and you see all the negative headlines associated with it and you know to me uh you know the thought is i uh i think it, you know what i was saying is if you have patient capital you know and this goes back to the whole concept of you know what your horizon is to invest in this asset class i think that there are massive opportunities in the hotel space right now uh simply because uh People are, you know, from what I have been seeing, dumping assets. Um, And, you know, I see it from the lender side because we're buying distressed, right? So there are a lot of lenders who are just absolutely getting out of the asset class. You know, they just don't want to even hold performing loans on their books right now because they're just like thinking doomsday. This is driving towards a brick wall and, you know, maybe the forbearances that are in place burn off and, you know, suddenly I got to carry defaulted loans, you know, and I want out now. So, you know, to me, I just see those as really tremendous uh, opportunities to buy irreplaceable real estate. Um, with hotel in particular, I, I would say the following that, you know, at some point, I'm, I'm an optimist, you know, uh, things get back to a new normal that involves uh, people traveling, whether it be for work or pleasure, uh, and uh, have to make decisions about places to stay, Uh, you know, what's happened now is that the hotel development pipeline is basically, you know, mill, right? Nobody's bringing more hotels online. So whatever's out there is out there. So as someone who was choosing to stay in a hotel, you can choose to stay at those that are built and open, right? So from that standpoint, You know, you now have a long term supply and demand component that's going to start working in your favor as a hotel operator. Uh, And then the other thing that uh, crosses my mind is that people are certainly going to be attuned to uh, cleaning protocols about places that they go to, no matter where you are, right? Hotel, office, retail, it doesn't matter. You know, people are going to just be uh, thinking about, okay. You know, what exactly is being done in this place to keep it clean and safe? Uh, and so I, I think that uh, when you think about the option of staying at Johnny's apartment that you can book on Airbnb, which looks really nice, but it's a private individual, right? Or a hotel that is going to have, you know, a corporate flag and a brand that you're familiar with that tells you up front, these are our cleaning protocols, these are our safety protocols, this is what we're doing to make your stay comfortable, healthy, safe. I think that a lot of people are going to be looking at that and they're going to be placing a lot of value in that, which to me, again, goes back to uh, value in the asset class. But again, I think you have to have a little bit of runway on that, you know, and so, you know, that's just uh, a matter of, you know, buying right. But if you do buy something right right now or, you know, in the near term, I think you could see tremendous value creation in the long term. So that's, that's my, you know, investment thesis on, on hotels in particular. But, you know, I'm, I'm very big on a lot of the unloved asset classes. I think office is a great place to be right now. Suburban office is a great place to be. And, you know, it's also one of the unloved. You know, we're pursuing a lot of deals right now in that space.
1: And that's, that's what I was going to ask you. What else is unloved? Uh, and I figured commercial office space as well and uh, retail. I don't know. Are you seeing that as well?
2: So, you know, retail, um, I think, uh, you know, the funny thing about retail is that it's, it was being challenged uh, before, uh, before lockdown, uh, you know, and, and the, uh The space was struggling to redefine itself. Um, You know, and you saw this idea of experiential retail um, coming to the forefront, you know, where a lot of uh, retail establishments and a lot of the nicer malls were trying to um, integrate more activity type things uh, into uh, their locations to get people to come. Because if you could order something online, you know, you really need to get in your car or, you know, head over to the mall or go to the stores or what have you. So, you know, I think, look, necessity retail doesn't go away to some degree. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, to me, it's it's a little murkier, you know, it's hard for me to say, um, you know, I do think that people want to get back out, you know, and, and they, you know, I think the you know, I would, I would put the restaurant space more into a category of hospitality than I would retail per se, even though, you know, it, it kind of gets categorized with the latter. Um, you know, but I, I think uh, selectively, you know, I think, uh, for example, you know, if you own like food franchises, you know, where there's, you know, drive throughs and delivery, uh, as well as, you know, being able to eat there, I think that's, uh, you know, good place to be, but I, I wouldn't necessarily, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's not a good uh, asset class. I'm just saying it's, it's a little hard for me to determine, uh, you know, where it goes because it was redefining itself before. I think it's going to have to do the same now. Um, so it's a, it's a little tougher for me. Office I can get my head around, uh, particularly suburban office, because, you know, there's this concept of like hub and spoke, um, that's being uh, described where even if there's like a headquarters in the downtown, that a lot of the bigger companies are now, um, you know, so that's the hub and a lot of them are, are all opening up, call it spoke locations uh, in like the suburbs where their employees are who don't necessarily want to have to commute in on a regular basis to uh, you know, the downtown, uh, you know, big office where they are. But I, I will say, and it's, it's somewhat informal, but everyone that I speak to that has gotten back to the office is really happy to be back at the office. There is just that productivity and creative interaction uh, that is really hard to synthesize uh, when you're working remotely. Uh, and there are certain jobs, and maybe you know it, it, you don't have to come in every day of the week. But you know, so the office may reform. Um, you may need less space as a business. Um, but overall, uh, I just, I just the idea that it goes away to me is not something that I buy into. Uh, so I really like the space a lot, and I particularly like suburban office because uh, I just think people do want to work closer to home. So. Um, that's, that's really where I've been focusing a lot, um, as, uh, just finding some like good opportunistic investments.
1: That is really interesting. I had not heard of the hub and spoke model, but I, I want to research that more. I, I agree. (laughs) I think, um, it, you know, it's been interesting to see even before COVID just the, um, the influx in, you know, kind of temporary office space, places to come and collaborate, um, you know, kind of shared spaces, which Which it's interesting, you know, in in my corporate world, I have used those spaces because they were closer to, you know, where the team was, and, you know, paid to rent, basically access to a facility where we could all meet and collaborate and it's just, I, I agree, people want to get together and don't always want to be virtual, but maybe want some of a balance, right? So not like every single day you're grinding it out, driving in, dealing with commute, but maybe there's some more flexibility that comes as a result, but people do want to get together. I, I agree with that.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and I think it also, uh, you know, a lot of people, um, it, it, I think it's also really fast tracking the evolution of, uh, of the flex space uh, models of, you know, people thought, well, that's the end of that because, uh, you know, it it really was targeting like the individuals when it started. Like the WeWorks were really uh, targeting like solo entrepreneur startup um, people. And so when those people didn't have to get back into the office or, you know, couldn't afford to, You know, it just looked like like it just got written off. But the reality is, you know, what people don't necessarily know is that a lot of the bigger companies have started to essentially outsource the office to companies like that, where they're just saying, look, I need, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 feet of building for my staff, you know, and I'm JP Morgan uh, in this city Um, but I may downscale that next month and I want to be able to walk as opposed to having to sign this like long-term lease and build out the space and get the equipment. So even if I'm paying a little bit of a premium, um, you know, it's fine because I've got that flexibility built in and someone else's headache. So I think um, it's actually driving more of that business now and really um, scaling it to a large degree.
1: I'm smiling because I'm thinking about, you know, being in tech, the cloud, scale up, scale down, pay for what you use. It's it's the office. It's the it's the cloud office, but it's actually a physical. But I, I I can totally see that. You know, flex office space, and that is an interesting. It's an interesting space to watch, and it's good to have your insight on that. Um, all right, as we look to wrap up, tell us where people can get in touch with you or learn more.
2: Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty active on my socials. Uh, LinkedIn is of course, uh, uh, an easy way to uh, find me. Um, it's David Blatt, Capstack CEO. Uh, and, uh, otherwise, uh, just, uh, our website, capstackpartners.com. Um, you know, I'm, I'm on top of my communications and everything. Uh, and, uh, I, like I said, um, you know, I, I like to, uh, find good things to talk about and write about so you know that's probably the easiest way to get me
1: awesome I'll have links to all of that in the show notes and uh, thank you so much for joining us today David
2: thank you for having me
0: thanks for tuning in to the Richard Geek podcast where we're helping others find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom for today's show notes, including all the links and resources from our show and more information about our guests, visit us at www.therichardgeek.com slash podcast. And don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Share with others who could benefit from listening and leave a rating and review to get podcast in front of more eyes. I appreciate you, and thanks for listening.